and welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. You sound like a ghost. <laughs> and we are back this week with a triple feature of which we saw one. One film. One film. This time. Yes. We've seen it before. Rather, I've seen it before. Yeah, don't speak for me. No, I don't. Before we get into our menage a trois, he probably not though, how was your week? It was busy, but it was good, yes. I went to a very interesting party at a very interesting house. Uh, that was probably the highlight of this week. It was my cupcakes. I made the yes. delicious cupcakes with you, a problematic name. What are they? Y'all, if you want to look up Irish Car Bomb Cupcakes, yes, I know it's a problematic name, but it's a delicious cupcake. It's a delicious cupcake. So I recommend it. There are four more in our fridge. Don't eat them and drive, though. What do you mean? Oh, well, yeah, no, there's booze in them. There's a lot of booze. <laughs> How was your week? It was good. It was about the same. Did you go to the party, too? I also went to the party. Oh, my gosh. You went to the same party? Same party. Yeah. I brought cheese sticks, cheese straws, and cupcakes, I don't know what salads. to call them. I've been calling them cheese fries, cheese sticks, cheese wands. I... They're called cheese straws. Okay. You and could how also do you make a cheese straw? Cheese Biscuits, you mix a lot of cheese with a lot of butter, and then you add a little bit of flour and some cayenne pepper, and then you bake them. And guess who grated the cheese? You grated, grated this all guy, the cheese. This guy grated cheese all night long. Like 36 ounces of cheese. Yes. <laughs> Three pounds of cheese. And Two and all some. with my fingernails. That's not true, because that would be gross. Yes, of course not. I wouldn't do that. All right. Speaking of fingernails. Speaking of fingernails. It has nothing to do with There was one in the brain. Right. Uh, We're going to talk the main thrust of today's episode. The main thrust. Is going to be the dark half. That is the topic this week. But before we get to the dark half, there were two other movies released between The Golden Years and The Dark Half that I want to touch on very briefly. Tell me more. The first one is Sleepwalkers. This Sleepwalkers. is a movie written by Stephen King. A Stephen King original. A Stephen King original, which The Golden Years also was, so we're fudging a little bit. But I've never seen it. I've only heard bad things about it. Do you have anything to say? This is the first Mick Garris film. Okay, so... Mick Garris, Stephen King film. Who told you bad things about this movie? You know, the world... <laughs> okay, so I was trying to find a way to summarize this movie well. And I think that everything that you need to know is mentioned in the opening paragraph of the Wikipedia description. Okay. Charles Brady and his mother, Mary, are sleepwalkers, nomadic, shape-shifting energy vampires who feed off the life force of virgin women. Oh, I'm out. They are normally maintain, they normally maintain a, uh, a human form. They can transform themselves into bipedal werecats. Their natural form at will, they have powers of telekinesis and illusion. Their only weaknesses are real cats with whom they have a mutual hostility, which can not only see through their illusions, but can illu- illusions, but can inflict severe to fatal wounds upon them with their claws. So, if you can't buy that paragraph, a normal-sized cat can take out a person-sized werecat yes, with its tiny claws. With its tiny claws, because they create terrible infections that that uh, hurt them. I saw this movie mostly because there's an actress in it I was very fond of. Magdanomic. Yes, who was on Twin Peaks, which we saw recently. And she is very good in it, and so is everyone, Brian Cowes and Alice Kriege. 
I think that's how you say her name, who is an actress who played a lot of very strange characters in her career. I remember her mostly from playing a very seductive ghost in the movie Ghost Story. Uh, but uh, she was the Borg Queen also in Star Trek First Contact. and she She's a kind of an unusual looking woman, and so she was perfect for this sort of part. But it is almost transgressive cinema because you see the mother and son making out all the time. And oh, thank you. Then she's very jealous of this young girl who they have to sacrifice, and of course the her son falls in love with the girl, and it's just... And then there's some very iffy special effects to add to it. I'm not sure where this movie was coming from or where it intended to go. So here's some interesting things about it. Okay, tell Ron me Ron Perlman is in it. Yes. He's always great. Also, some weird cameos. Stephen King cameos in it. Mm-hmm. John Landis, Joe Dante, Clive Barker, Tobe Hooper, and Mark Hamill. Right. Mark Hamill, what are you doing? Get out of there. And also... It was originally give one. They wanted Rupert Wainwright, the singer, uh, and to my knowledge, not film director, uh, to direct. But King wanted Mick Garris, who had previously directed Critters Two, The Main Course, and Psycho Four: The Beginning, which was also oddly a film about incest. Yes, uh, and so that's the beginning of a long friendship between those two right. men. It- isn't a good movie. I don't... Yeah. And it seems like too many things. You well, can be a were-cat, or you could be a vampire, but you don't have to be or both. Or you could be a virgin. We don't need you, to bring right. virgins into this no. at all. Yeah. So we're not. We're it, not. It, it was not a great film. It was on not too long ago, and I saw it again. And it bordered on the ridiculous. Remember that Stephen King was very fond of B-movies. Yes. Growing up. And this is essentially a more expensive version of a B-movie. But that's not... There's questionable special effects. Yes, and that was kind of... The point is that it is not expensive. B-movies were made with limited resources very quickly to cash in on a horror audience. And... In that way, they're honest. And to pair with right. something that actually has a budget. Uh, well, I mean, those kinds of B-movies. There's other sorts of B-movies, noir B-movies and things like that. Yeah, but, but like... But this kind of film, the film that, you know, the Burt I. Gordon, Roger Corman films that he yeah. admired so much, they were made out of necessity, deliberately making a movie to look this cheap and... It just looks like you're in. not trying right. Sharknado. I'm talking to you. It, All it's right. just not great. So, so let's move on. Yes, but it was, I mean, it's an entertaining enough way if you're undemanding about entertainment. Uh, the next thing I want to touch on just briefly is The Lawnmower Man, right. which is a movie that has the Stephen King name and title attached to it explicitly against judges' instructions. Uh, New Line Cinema basically told the court to go suck it, uh, when they were sued to take the name and Stephen King's name off of this film, uh-huh. uh, because it has, I'm not going to say almost nothing to do with the original story. I'm going to say nothing to do with the original story. The Lawnmower Man story is about a satyr who actively eats somebody's lawn, including biting the head off of some sort of marmot, uh-huh. chipmunk or something. Okay. 
That's rude. Before killing the homeowner. Uh-huh. It's a six-page story. No. It has literally nothing to do other right. than the fact that Jeff Fahey mows lawns at one point in this movie. Nothing to do with this movie. And the publisher and Stephen King sued to have the production company take their name off of it. Uh-huh. They won that lawsuit, and then the production company just double-barreled, double-fingered them, and just was like, we're going to do whatever the fuck we want, and you can eat a pile of dicks. No, no. <laughs> have you seen the film? I've seen the film. So what are your feelings about the film itself? I don't want to speak about it on this show, because it's, this show is about Right, I'm just thing. curious about your opinion about the film itself. Um... This film and Hackers belong together in uh-huh. a lot of ways because they're like, internet, computers, this is what the inside of the internet looks like. No, mm-hmm. it isn't. No, it is not. <laughs> um, it's a fine movie. Jeff Fahey is actually very good in it. I would like to say it. Pierce Brosnan, Jeff Fahey does a really good job. Jenny Wright, who's this very ethereal 80s actress who disappeared not too soon after that. Jeffrey Lewis. There's Dean Norris. There's a lot of really good actors. And there's some good performances in here. It has nothing to do with Stephen King. It has but nothing it to does Stephen feel King. like okay. when you're watching the film that they're taking stock background characters out of Stephen King. Maybe, you but know, the, they're not. But the simpleton character, the ambitious what, scientist. But they didn't. That's the right. thing. That is that is us deciding that that's the case. Yeah. Because the movie was it, a whole movie unto uh, itself. And then they got the rights to the name right. and they just mushed them together. And then. In a very much uh, will ask for forgiveness and not permission situation, we'll lease the film with Stephen King's name and the title. I mean, you, if you've read the story, it's not a movie. Right. It's it's a five-minute scene, if that. Like, it's not. It's a vignette. It's it's barely a short story as it is. Yeah. but And it's deeply upsetting to me that they could just be, like, flagrantly, you know, ruled against and still they don't care and they continue to violate the law or the the ruling mm-hmm. against them. That sucks. Y'all, that sucks. Could we not be terrible people? Says the person who might have to go to court in the next week and is stressing out about it. Can we not be terrible people, please? That might be asking too much. Um. So that's the lawnmower, man. Uh-huh. It doesn't have anything to do with Stephen King. And Sleepwalkers, it does have to do with Stephen King. So if you want to, if you want a full Stephen King experience... Get it on Sleepwalkers. But we're doing adaptations, even though we cheated with the Golden Years. Maybe this would have been better. It would have been shorter. <laughs> yeah, it would have been. But um, we'll definitely spend some time with Mick Garris and Stephen King later on. So yes. don't worry. And the results will be very uneven, which well, is the sad part. That's fine. So today we're going to talk about George Romero and Stephen King and Timothy Hutton and the Dark Half. Story about the death of Richard Bachman, <laughs> who was so never alive. Why don't you inform me as um, as uh, uh, the the uninformed antiquarian who Richard Bachman is? <laughs> Richard Bachman is the pen name of Stephen King. Uh, he's also the dedicatee of the Dark Half. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dedication. Or the author's note at the on the dark half is I am indebted in indebted. indebted I am indebted to the late Richard Bachman for his help and inspiration. This novel could not have been written without him. 
So it's a pen name used by Stephen King, and he actually used the pen name even after this book was written. He didn't really retire him, retire him. So he wrote four novellas. Oh, no, I'm wrong. Okay. So the Bachman books is four novellas. Mm -hmm. Thinner was written under the Bachman title, or under the Bachman pseudonym. Uh, And later... Uh, he was outed in... Okay, so the early books were Rage, uh-huh. The Long Walk... Now, Rage is no longer in print, right? Right. I'll get to it in just a second. The Long Walk, Road Work, and The Running Man. So The Running Man we saw right. uh, the adaptation for. I believe they are doing a Road Work adaptation. Okay. It's in the works, so depending on when it comes out, <laughs> we may get to it. Um, I always thought The Long Walk would actually make a good movie. I think... It's a little too similar now to something like The Hunger Games okay. for it to work anymore, but it was released in 1979, so it was right. there first. And Rage is uh, out of print. He took it out of print because it is basically a how-to manual for a school shooting uh, um. and after Columbine, so it took precisely one school shooting, uh, Stephen King decided that he would not continue to publish that story. So um, you can still find it, you know, in older versions that had been published for 20 years, but it is no longer published. He was outed by someone named Steve Brown, a Washington, D.C. bookstore clerk, outed him by going to the Library of Congress. <laughs> because the Library of Congress has all this information. You have to tell who the actual people who wrote the books are. Uh, and uh, Brown wrote to King's Publishers with a copy of the documents he'd uncovered and asked them what to do, which is a weird request. Well, it sounds very much like the jerk in the film who... Yeah, but he's not like, who's just give digging. us money. Yeah, no, but yeah. still, why would you bother? It's... It seems to me, as a writer, that if I didn't want to be found out, I really wish people wouldn't go digging. It's like you, as the reader, have been presented with something. Well, just read it and leave it alone. But it feels to me like he was... Ex- I don't think he was like, give me money or I'm right. going to tell everybody that this was... But he, I think it was more like, I found an Easter egg. I found an Easter egg in my favorite writer's things. Um, and King called him and said, you should write an article about how uh-huh. you fi- found it and I will be interviewed for it. So King was fine with it. Uh, yeah, it just seems irritating. <laughs> I would be really annoyed. So the the reason, mm-hmm. and and uh, I want to call her Nora Ephron every time we talk about her, Nora Roberts uh-huh. uh, has this problem, as does uh, Alexander McCall Smith. Uh-huh. And I would dare say Joyce Carol Oates might have a, a, a nom de plume because when Stephen King started writing, they would publish one book per year, and he was writing more than one book per year. And so to make money for both him and his publishers, they put a different name on it. Now, okay. Nora Roberts writes under the name J.D. Robb, uh, also because she's writing a different style of book. A Nora Roberts book is one thing, and a J.D. Robb book right. is another thing. Um, uh, another recent nom de plume user, of course, is J.K. Rowling, because she wanted her adult books to be not viewed through the same lens as right. this is the Harry Potter lady. Now, that works and it doesn't work because even before those books were published, we knew that this was her pseudonym. 
right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not so much a secret these days. Originally, he was going to use the name Gus Pillsbury. Like the Doughboy? Yes, it's his uh, maternal grandfather's name. He was just name. making muffins one day, and it just came to him. He, he, it was his maternal grandfather's name, but at the last moment, due to that pseudonym being outed, he changed it to Richard Bachman. It's a tribute to crime author Donald E. Westlake's long-running pseudonym Richard Stark, which, of course, then he goes on and uses right. in this book. Uh, and uh, so Richard, for that, and Bachman was uh, inspired by Bachman Turner Overdrive. So. so Bachman was in the Coast Guard? And became a merchant marine. He yes. And he ran a dairy farm. Yes. <laughs> He's a very born in New York, guy. served a four-year stint uh-huh. in the Coast Guard, followed by ten years in the merchant marine. Finally settled in rural Central New Hampshire, me- running a medium-sized dairy farm and writing at night. His fifth uh, novel is do- dedicated to his wife Claudia Inez Bachman, <laughs> who also received credit for the bogus author photo at the back of the book jacket. Other facts revealed in publicity dispatches from their publishers. They had one child, a boy who died in an unfortunate Stephen Kingish type accident at the age of six when he fell through a well and drowned. In 1982, a brain tumor was discovered near the base of Bachman's brain. Tricky surgery removed it. After his true identity was revealed, the later publicity dispatches revealed that Bachman died suddenly in late 1985 of cancer of the pseudonym, a rare form of schizophrenia, which is very good. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, so Rage, The Long Walk, Roadwork, The Running Man all came out as individual books and then were released in 1985 as a collection, uh-huh. the Bachman books. Uh, Thinner was released in 1984. Uh, and then later, he revived the name for two books, uh, The Regulators in 1996 and Blaze in 2007. All right. Um, I thought there was another one, because The Regulators and... Desperation? Yes. Okay. Those two are similar in my head, and I, so I always think that they're both I Bachman books. I did find some uh, book club editions of those. at a, There was a bookstore that was in San Leandro, which is a few miles from us. Mm-hmm. And uh, Grey Wolf Books, and it was a warehouse, and there were boxes of books along the floor, and I used to do a painting job in San Leandro, and on my breaks, I'd walk over to this Grey Wolf bookstore, and I found these stacks of Stephen King. Mm-hmm. And so I remember uh, we have a mutual friend who, her two copies of those books, Desperation and Regulators, I think, are both book club editions I got from that store, which sadly is no longer with us, like a lot of independent bookstores. But I remember the experience of, of finding them and hunting yeah. through this big warehouse that had no ventilation whatsoever in the dead of summer, so it was easily 90 degrees inside the place. Um, I wanted to... So apparently the reason that they're in my head together is, mm-hmm. um, I'm reading, in 1996, Bachman's The Regulators came out, with publishers claiming the book's manuscript was found among Bachman's leftovers papers by his widow. It was released as a companion novel Uh with Desperation. The two novels took place in different universes but featured many of the same characters, which is why they are together in my head. There's a film version that Mick Garris did of... One of them, Desperation, Desperation, I think, think. with uh, Ron Perlman in it. Right. Uh, And um, the two book covers, you could put them together and it was one picture. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Okay. So... That's then, Richard Bachman, right? Yes, so that's Richard Bachman. Now, 
this book is basically an autobiographical story. Well, it starts that I mean, way, it and then it turns into it a horror film, So a horror story. Our main character, Tim Hutton, of the beautiful, beautiful blue eyes, and guys, watch Leverage, it's so good. Right, you uh, <laughs> It's a lot of fun. Stars as Thaddeus Beaumont. Yeah, that's what I said. That's his name, Thaddeus Beaumont. Um, Not the third, mm-hmm. but definitely of the Connecticut Beaumonts. Uh, he's a writer. He's a, a novelist of serious novels. This is the first time Stephen King has written uh, about writers, I think. And he's also a professor. He's a fiction professor in a college. There's one of those really uncomfortable scenes I don't like in films where a professor is giving a lecture and all of his students are just loving it. Or like, ha, 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 how droll. That, I don't not... know that in this particular date and time that was a cliche. It is such a cliche It might now. be, but I've been in fiction classes and it was pretty spot on. Although usually fiction classes aren't in lecture halls because right. that's a lot to read. Yeah. So typically, like, fiction classes are in like groups of third, like in real classes. It's a but. scene that I have seen, and again, maybe but I'm looking at an early example of it that later on just becomes. Ridiculous. You've never been in a college classroom that was well, like not that? in a lecture hall, no. But oh, okay. also the 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 kind of I don't know. I've seen too many of them, and of course, everyone leaves the room, and there's one person left, and that's the person who wants to talk to the professor. I well, and I yes. think maybe because I had just seen this happen two or three times on the episodes we're watching of The Good Place, where that same scene, a version of it gets played oh, well, over and yes, over again. That's, it's well, becoming, then that's not fair. You can't blame this movie. No, 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 no. But what I'm saying is that now. this scene has become a cliche. It's now a trope. All right. But we're not going to talk about that scene yet. We're going to talk about uh-huh. 1968, which in the book is 1960, because all of the movies are off by uh, about a half a decade. Well, if not, the characters would be too old, quote unquote. Yes, I understand. Let me read you about Thad Beaumont from the book. Mm -hmm. Thad, a quiet, earnest boy who could never seem to hold on to things and often tripped over his own large feet. That's Thad Beaumont as a child. He suffers uh, blinding headaches and seizures and goes to the doctor. And they are like, we're going to open his brain because there might be something in there. And I'm going to read to you from the book. This is what happens when he is 11 years old. The assisting OR nurse saw it first. Her scream was shrill and shocking in the operating room, where the only sounds for the last 15 minutes had been Dr. Pritchard's murmured commands, the hiss of the bulky life support machinery, and the brief high whine of the negli saw. Oh my God. Oh Jesus, Jesus Christ. He recoiled for a moment, then leaned in close. Above his mask and behind the horn-rimmed spectacles, his eyes were wide with a sudden glinting curiosity. What is it? I think you see what it is, Pritchard said. It's just that it takes a second to get used to. I've read about it, but never expected to actually see it. Thad Beaumont's brain was the color of a conch shell's outer edge, a medium gray with just the slightest tinge of rose. Protruding from the smooth surface of the dura was a single blind and malformed human eye. The brain was pulsing slightly. The eye pulsed with it. It looked as if it were trying to wink at them. It was this, the look of the wink, which had driven the assisting nurse from the OR. Jesus God, what is it? Albertson asked again. It's nothing, Pritchard said. Once it might have been a living, breathing human being. Now it's nothing, except trouble, that is. And this happens to be trouble we can handle. In addition to the eye, they found part of a nostril, three fingernails, and two teeth. One of the teeth had a small cavity in it. 
The eye went on pulsing and trying to wink right up to the second where Pritchard used the needle scalpel to first puncture and then excise it. The entire operation from initial probe to final excision took only 27 minutes. Five chunks of flesh plopped wetly into the stainless steel pan on the Ross tray behind Thad's shaven head. I think we're clear, Pritchard said at last. All the foreign tissues seem to be connected by rudimentary ganglia. Even if there are other chunks, I think the chances are good that we've killed them. So. I don't like the, the additive wetly, but it'll work. We have the, another, I think the anesthesiologist mm-hmm. say, but how can that be if the kid's still alive? I mean, it's a part of him, isn't it? Loring asked, bewildered. Pritchard pointed to the, toward the tray. We find an eye, some teeth, and a bunch of fingernails in this kid's head, and you think it was part of him? Did you see any of his nails missing? Want to check? But even cancer is just part of the patient's own. This wasn't cancer, Pritchard told him patiently. His hands went about their own work as he talked. In a great many deliveries where the mother gives birth to a single child, that child actually started in existence as a twin. It may run as high as two in every ten. What happens to the other fetus? The stronger absorbs the weaker absorbs it? Do you mean eats it? I'm going to stop now because you're a doctor and you should know some of these things. Well, this is uh, Basil Exposition. <laughs> yes, yes, that is what is happening. But So when Thad Beaumont was an 11-year-old boy, he had the remains of a twin that mm-hmm. likely started growing when his pituitary gland started shooting out hormones right. when he was becoming a a teen that started to grow and caused these problems. This is a thing that can happen and has happened. It's not bonkers. Right. Like, that is not a far-fetched thing. My understanding, then, is that Thad does not know. His family knew. His parents knew. But I don't think Thad knew. Now. Now he's an adult, and he has twins of his own, which... I actually like because it shows, because twins typically run in families. families. Yeah, so I I enjoy that that little aspect. So he's got twin babies with his wife, who's played by... Amy Madigan. Amy Madigan. And an unfortunate hair color. Yeah, it's very red, y'all. Very, very red. And um, he is in this lecture hall, as you say, uh, teaching. And he is accosted by a tweaky-looking motherfucker who wants his signature on a book by one George Stark. To wit, Thad says, it's not my book. Doesn't even look like me. Which is wild. (laughs) Because there is a picture of a different person on there. Right. And uh, then he shakes off this guy who says he's going to keep coming for him and heads home. And lo and behold, of course it's him. Of course he is the writer of this book. He has published a couple of Thad Beaumont's books, or Thad Beaumont books, and four, I believe, George Stark books, which are uh, like gritty noir. Like Right, but they seem to describe as a central character someone named Alexis Machine. Yes. Who I can't make out if this is a case of just a really nasty anti-hero who, among other things, castrates... Right, yeah, he's... Victims, cuts them with a, cuts them with a straight razor. That's his preferred weapon of yes, choice. Yes, preferred weapon. I'm, yeah, I'm unclear what this character is. Um, like, I was like, is he a PI with just, like, mm-hmm. everything 
is a tool, so he'll go ahead and use whatever's at his disposal? Or is he like a mob enforcer? Like, it's unclear to me. But he's the Judging star the of film, the books. Yeah. Um, and I imagine that I, I, my feeling was that he was like Ripley in the uh, Patricia Highsmith novels, sort of an anti-hero that you're following around, uh, along. What the Patricia Highsmith novels? Uh, Patricia Highsmith wrote a series of novels about Ripley. The most famous one is probably... Oh, uh, The Talented Mister, that one? Right, that oh, Okay. And there's a series of the novels... The only Ripley I could think of was the alien Ripley, no. and I was like, that's not what the, the, uh, Those are a series of novels about a sociopath and right. their exploits in... Okay. And so I was imagining... But they're like crime novels. They're crime novels yeah. where the central oh, character so is the guy committing the crimes. Yes, okay, maybe that. So I was imagining that would probably yeah. fit into what he was Alexis doing. Alexis Machine is such a Simpsons-ass name. Max uh, Power. Yeah, it did not... <laughs> I, I didn't care for it myself. It just seemed a little silly. It feels very he- heavy-handed. Um, so he and his publishers... <laughs> the publishers have a very funny conversation because they're like... Uh, I think it's his agent and his editor, who used to be married but aren't anymore. Right. Uh, and the I think it's the editor who's like, I read George Stark novels for fun. I read Thad Beaumont novels because it's my job. <laughs> it's just like, woof. Well, one is literary and one is the literary equivalent of a Quentin Tarantino movie, I right, guess. Right, but like... Yeah, I know can be literary and fun. Yes, they can be. I think so, but I guess it depends on whether you like junk literature. Maybe his writing is just not that good. So they decide that they're going to kill him. They're going to kill George Stark. They they do a whole uh, spread. In the book, it's People magazine. I don't know if it's People in the the movie. If there was no name dropping to the extent that I could tell what the magazine was. They set up a fake headstone at the family plot. Which is just it's, not a great it's, idea. It's a weird thing because it literally says George Stark, 1985 to 1991, not a very nice guy. Right. But that that age makes him six. So right. this is a weird, it's just a weird situation where like, normally the when the age is six, it's sad. <laughs> like, And... Like I said, a bunch of photos are taken. None of the kids. We want to, the, I, their babysitter, who is played by Julie Harris, it's a family friend. I thought it was maybe his mother-in-law, but I don't know. Reggie, you mean that character? Yeah, Reggie. I, I'm not sure exactly how the, she's connected right, to what that. what relation she was. It was nice to see her. Something that I appreciated about this film, and especially since it's directed by George Romero, there is a lot of callbacks in this film to other horror movies. Yeah. Julia Harris was the lead in the adaptation of Shirley Jackson's The Hunting, which was The Hunting of Hill House. And there's a line from that film that she repeats in this movie about loading out her car. Yes. And there was also something else that I pointed out to you that there seems to be a musical cue taken from Dario Argento's score for Suspiria. Yes, yes, yes. And so there's a lot of neat kind of references in here. Royal Dano, uh, who... Works in the graveyard. Yeah. This was his last film. He appeared in Something Wicked This Way Comes, and he appeared in a lot of horror stuff. Oh, interesting. Over the years. So, yeah, he uh, there's some callbacks there that were really kind of fun. Yeah. This movie overall is quite fun. Right, it is. And it's enjoyable, and it works as a thriller. It does. The ending doesn't make a damn lick of sense, no, but, but, that's but the rest of the film works pretty well. <laughs> oh, the other thing that we should say is during the surgery, there's a shit ton of sparrows outside of the church. 
Right. Which I mean, is, the hospital, yeah. which has got nuns in it, and that's why I thought it was a church for a second. There's a novitiate at the window. Right. Yes, it's like a saint something hospital. So uh, there's just all these sparrows at the time of the surgery. They'll be back because they are what? Harbingers. Harbingers. Harbinger. I don't know that word, but go ahead. Uh, and so they do this, and then that's writing a book, and everything is fine. Everything's moving forward until, oops, nope. Every 10 minutes in this movie, somebody is murdered. <laughs> Which, if you're writing a script, means every 10 pages, somebody was like, well, we'll get rid of somebody, that'll move the plot along. I don't know the book very well, but it follows, it doesn't feel very forced. It feels like it's it doesn't, perfectly it, natural. But it is moving at a clip where like mm. 35 minutes in, I'm like, fuck, the body count in this movie is already very high. Yeah, it is. So the first thing that happens is the photographer for the photo shoot, whose idea it was to set up this grave, is pulled out of his truck and beaten to death with his own wooden leg, which right. is fucked up. Which is a way to go if you're going to uh, somebody. And... The murderer leaves behind Thad Beaumont's fingerprints. And who, who do we have? We have Alan Pangborn, who will come back in our next movie as well, played in this by Michael Rooker, who is the voice of reason for the first half of this movie, which means you know you're in trouble because if Michael Rooker is your voice of reason, then something has gone deeply wrong. Right. Deeply Now, Michael Rooker... As we talked about yesterday when we were watching the film, he's an actor like, um, who was the example that I brought up yesterday? Dennis Hopper. Yes. Where he's an actor who's hired to be eccentric and weird. Now. Now. And he is. But also, he's that guy. in his life, yes. Right. He, um, he is on, or was on, mm-hmm. quite a few times, Doug Loves Movies. Uh-huh. And he is uh, not... All together well, there. Or another or another <laughs> example for modern actors would be someone like Brad Dourif. You'd yes. never hire him to play like, the town oh, librarian. Yeah, yes. He's going to be... And so it's very odd watching an actor who's known... So in 1991, though, right. he was still in his right mind. Well, he was... With a full head of beautiful hair. His right. hair looks so good in this movie. Um, and he is the Castle Rock mm-hmm. cop. Sure. right. Now, they don't live in Castle Rock. So the first time we see him interact with Thad Beaumont, he is 160 miles out of his jurisdiction, which Thad knows with a disturbing degree of... He's a writer. I mean, he, well, that doesn't... I don't know what that... No, but writers like. memorize lots of completely pointless things. Maybe. And, and, so and Castle Rock is his... If he's a regional writer, yeah, even more so. Castle Rock is his home. He lives in Bangor. Uh-huh. I mean, it makes sense if yeah. he's going to make the track he knows how far it is, but, like, he just spits it out with an ease that's, like... And he didn't round it. 150 feels yeah, right. 160 mm-hmm. is so specific. <laughs> um, and... So, Homer Gamache, or Gamachi? I don't know. Gamache. He, he is the one that... The first one that is killed. Um, the second... Third and fourth, I don't know which order, but the editor, the agent, editor, agent, and agent's ex-wife, but it's actually only two people. And the dirty rat, Fink. 
and then Fred Clausen, who was right. the person who set this whole thing. And in you motion. said yourself you thought that that scene was really well handled that for scene its restraint. Very well handled because you come in and you see him from behind. He's uh-huh. clearly in a chair. He's nude. You don't see him. You see the the his leg and his leg is you know skin, not pants. Uh-huh. And there is blood spatter all over his leg. And from there, you know that he has been. Um, interfered with I think is the way that they put it when you want to be delicate and then you see the shadow and his penis has been removed from his body and stuffed into his mouth now also his tongue was cut out but right. you don't see that you just well because you have later. to make room yes um, I guess clearly the, this, had been, this references a scene earlier in the film where Thad uh, has is ruminating over what he would do to a, a fink or a squealer yeah. in front of his children. And this is disturbing his wife. His wife, yeah. Because when he's writing, as she told him, when he's writing these novels, he becomes mean. He winds up uh, adapting a different personality and becoming very hostile and very kind of mean-spirited. Uh, so... Yeah, yes. That's the is, thing um, that we mm-hmm. find out from the wife, Mamie Madigan's character is she was all too happy to put Charge Stark in the ground because three years ago, Thad quit drinking mm-hmm. and quit smoking. But Stark didn't. And when Stark and when he's writing in as Stark, he's drinking and smoking and becomes abusive. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think that Thad knows that this is really And how many happening. years ago was that? Three. Okay, so that means this But is, in the three years, he's released books This would then. be before the babies, then. Yes, those babies are fresh. They're pretty fresh. I would okay. say probably... And they're adorable. Seven, eight months old. The babies make a weird kind of Greek they're chorus not walking at the end yet. of the film. They are very cute. They are very cute babies. I wonder if there were like six of them. Uh, possibly. Because they are identical twins mm-hmm. on the screen, so I wonder if they were like... <laughs> and it must have been, I think to me, trouble to work around them because... Yeah. They're not kids. in that many scenes, and there's yeah. a reason, because that's a lot of baby. Now, originally, Clausen is thought to be the person that was behind because it. That's his who Thad says. Are, oh, no, no, excuse me. No, no, right. That's right. Clausen. Yeah, the, but then the, they the go to Clausen, and then, of course, he has been also murdered. So, mm. Mm. now, this is where some white privilege starts really coming through, because his, uh, oh, also above Clausen's body uh, on the wall, in his own blood, it says the sparrows are flying again. Which Thad says he doesn't know what it is. But at the same time, Thad is having these little fugue states where he is using pencils. George Stark only writes in barrel black beauty pencil like a child. It's wild to me that a that this character writes in pencil. That's a terrible way to write a first don't, draft. Don't be, don't be hating. I hate... I hate as a person who you smudge that and it's gone. Yeah, but again, this is it's a different time. Sad uh, oh. writes Beaumont, which by the way, Charles Beaumont was one of the most famous horror writers right. in the fifties, wrote for the Twilight Zone and mm-hmm. was a huge influence on King. So right. I I think that might have been a part of it. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Um so he's been kind of fuging out and writing these things, and he's like, okay, I think that George Stark is killing these people, which, yes, no, that makes no sense. Now, 
I want to say, sort of as a spoiler alert, as a, a an across-the-board thing, this is not a situation where he is doing it and is unaware of it. Right. This is not a, a fucking adaptation. He's the killer, the cop, and the victim all at the same time. It's done with trick photography. No, 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 no. There is another being, played also by Timothy Hutton, with weird makeup, because you can see it, but it, then it turns out his face starts deteriorating, so that's why they did it. Uh, and badass hair, and a banana's car, driving around with a terrible Oxford, Mississippi accent, murdering people with a straight razor. No. He is way more, um, what's the word I'm looking Physically for? Physically coordinated? Yes. Yes. Than the Thad Beaumont that we see constantly knocking shit over. Right, which is weird. It's like he, that's, he, his stumble, John, personality is really a part of that character. Yes. But I want to go back to a couple of things. Timothy Hutton deserves a great deal of recognition because I've seen a lot of, watching a lot of suspense and horror, you see a lot of these kind of evil twin, whatever, yeah. and it's the same actor. It's rare that somebody's able to pull off a completely different character. Yes. And I remember watching I, the one with Jet Li. Yes. Where he did it because, again, here's a man who's completely mastered his body, so he changes his body language completely. Timothy Hutton does a similar thing here. Where yes. I felt like the villain character is almost like he's walking with an enormous invisible codpiece. Yes. Which is just the kind he of swagger. He does walk like his pr- dick is right. giant and he, just too big for these pants. Which is exactly <laughs> what you would want out of this guy. Like, this is his whole life. He's just a giant erection and he's angry. Yeah. And, and again, weirdly nimble. And the other guy just doesn't know where his boundaries are. So he creates two completely different characters. To where later on when they confront each other, you can buy that these are two different people. What I didn't buy is what you just described. Because I think there's so many other ways of taking this story rather than making him an imaginary person who somehow is solid enough to commit these crimes. And that Timothy Hutton and uh, Thad Belmont and his wife yeah. really expect Sheriff Pangborn to take this seriously. Right. Which is I, bizarre. Like They yes, do, but also they, they, right. they understand. To an extent. They understand that what they're saying is not rational. But they also expect to be given the leeway to be irrational. Is this where and your privilege comes in? they are given that leeway. Right. And it And finally, near the end, Pangborn is like, uh, no, we got to fucking lock this motherfucker up. Right. Because like, at this point, like nine people have died, including the doctor... Right. who had performed the surgery on him when he was little. Well, Thad is in the office getting answers. Yes, and this just seemed to be ridiculous to me. Stark and comes in right. unseen uh-huh. by Thad and slits this dude's throat. <laughs> it's, uh, and then at that point, Pangborn's like, lock this motherfucker up. But meanwhile, this is everyone's at a heightened pace and 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 Beaumont's like Fab's like you got he calls his wife and he's like get the kids and go Uh you can't tell me where you're going you just have to tell somebody that you're safe right but don't tell me where you are because I think if I know a thing he knows a thing and I don't want you to die 
And so she tries to leave, and one fucking Deputy Dewey, I'm like, well, you're right. fucking not long for this world, is like, nope, you can't leave. You're stuck here. You're here. I'm here watching you. Everything's going to be totes fine, which this body count would fucking lead me to believe that was not true. Exactly. Um, and so the police do a piss poor job of uh, protecting this family. They do a great job of dying. They, there so are many more deaths. dead police in this There's film. Only, I think three. When the when the agent comes in to his apartment, yeah. there are two dead cops just leaning against each leaning other. Against each uh, other. It's like, well, the, yeah, it's, um, and, and mind you, what I like about the scenes where the, the, the death scenes, the makeup is amazing in this film. There's a lot of really good practical effects and makeup work mm-hmm. in the film. But, and, you, and you see, like you do see that brain thing. Mm-hmm. Right, that image is really well realized. Uh, you do see um, let's see, what am I saying? The birds are very well realized up and again up until the end of the film, and the, there's a reason for that, as it turns out. Yes. Um, so Reggie, the mm-hmm. the woman that we mentioned earlier, um, sort of realizes that he's controlled by the books that that has written. He'll do anything he can to sort of subsume right. that. Like the sparrows are coming, and they are, they will be. That's the word I want. They will be taking the soul of one of them. Right. And Stark wants it to be Thad. Now, Thad has this thought in his head that he can't hurt me because if something happens to me, then he's going to just disappear. But it turns out that that's not, that doesn't, that's not yeah. the case. That's, that's, that logic is not the logic that well, he eventually will living by. If one of them, only one of them can survive. So there's a... I, I don't know if you want to get to that now. He does a thing at one point where he's he's supposed to be writing, uh-huh. um, and they can sort of talk to each other right. uh, psychically, and um, Thad is trying to figure out where George is, and George like makes Thad stab himself in the hand by stabbing himself in the yeah. hand with a pencil, and then he's like, take it like a man, which can we not? He is like also like toxic masculinity, just fucking walking around, uh, and then he just pours some whiskey on it because yeah, he did. And but Thad is like trying to figure out, like he's like he, the idea is if he writes a story where uh, Stark emerges into the real world. I don't know how that would even work because in the books he's not a figment. Well, that's like kind it's of a weird. I'm like, what are you trying to get him to write? At this point, because what I was trying to accept was, or what I was having problems with, and something that we've discussed in my writing, is what are the boundaries of the world that you create? Yeah. And so it wasn't very clear to me what the hell the birds had to do with anything. Well, I think the idea is uh, there's too many souls. One of these and souls so the birds belongs are in the afterlife. Away. So, so the birds are going to birds away. happen when he's born. I don't know why there's this whole story about the sparrows are flying. It just seemed like another trope, like writing Red Rum. I think it's filled in more in the book. Okay. But, but I mean, for the they purposes need of... need something to let you know he's around. As the cinematic audience for the film. Right. I don't know how he exists. I don't know how Sheriff Pangborn is able... To, it does not arrest him when he finds his fingerprints and the yeah. lack of an alibi. The, yes. For any of this, it seems ridiculous that he lets him, he gives him enough rope to run around, or why he instinctively trusts that... 
Yeah, and and we start to see George mm. deteriorating, like as he's in the real world. Like he, Alexis, you mean, or no, no, no it's George Stark. Okay, because there is no Alexis machine. Like, okay, there is no, I mean, I keep associating him with. He that is the acting character. like that character, right. but he is not that character. Yeah, no, I know it's that is also a little bit confusing. Which is, which is strange because he is he Alexis or is he George? So are we saying that? Because there's a line early on when the, you know, Mr. Ratfink, and I'll call him that because he looks like every Ratfink in he every does. film noir yeah, yeah, ever. Yeah. Uh, he says, well, as if it would somehow hurt the sales of the book going, well, it'll, it'll damage them to know that you've never done those things like the character in the book. Being that the character in the book is a homicidal maniac, I don't yeah. know that you'd want to read yeah. stuff that has the yeah, stamp of authenticity from a, a killer. Like, I almost want to have a James Frey conversation now, but um, we don't have to do that. Uh, other than to say, do you know who James Frey is? Oh yes, a million I do. little pieces. I was okay. I was there. I was a part of the. I was watching Oprah that day. Oh okay. So my takeaway as a person who writes creative nonfiction, mm-hmm. um, and a person who is an empathetic person, right. I am personally glad that that book is fiction because the shit that happens to the character in that book is terrible, and I'm glad that somebody didn't have to live through right. it. Also, he gave that book to his publishers as a fiction book, and his publishers opted to sell it, or his agent opted to push mm. it as both fiction and nonfiction. That's not on him. Yes, he went on and sold it and blah, 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 whatever. Well, I'll people underestimate how much a writer makes, anyhow. You also... <laughs> so, it's... The idea yeah. that any memoir is 100% truth is also deeply flawed. No. That's not how absolutely. humans work. Well, it's not how memoirs work either. No. But So, in the, that's in the, fine. And But I was just glad. I was like, oh, he didn't have yeah, I don't dental see, surgery without anesthetic? I'm so glad. I don't see why <laughs> it would be so important to believe that the person who's writing your homicidal maniac novel is an actual homicidal maniac. Yeah, and I also don't... I don't know how that increases to, you know book sales. Th- there's a write-what-you-know thing, but mm-hmm. there is also the ability to write full, empathy-getting round characters and experiences without 100% having gone through those things. It is possible to do that. So be a writer. It's why method acting is bad acting. You're Mm -hmm. not acting anymore. You're just that thing now. There's a whole other can of worms right there. But you know what I mean? Like there's, there's acting and there's method acting. There's turning it on and turning it off like mm. it's your job. Right. And there's the inability to do that. So immersing yourself in a thing for six months before you start work. Because you can't turn it on and turn it off. I, I Sorry, but like... I, I have... Uh, there are some Because method... most people who quote-unquote method acts do uh, it poorly and are assholes about there it. There are method performances <laughs> I have to say that I like and a good many that I... It's just like I. This is ridiculous. I don't believe this at all. But anyhow, going so, back to the book, though. Yes, I don't. I, think... I don't. My issue is I don't know where the borders of this world are. Yes, it has rules that have no internal logic. No, and it, I think it, that it if, goes full body horror at the right. end. If it had been, I was reading the novel, mm-hmm. and I had several hundred pages yep. to get used to this idea. Mm-hmm. We don't have that much time here. So I think that the flaw in this film and this script is it should have chosen a way to go that would have made more sense given the limited scope of what we were doing. 
we have this limited amount of time. Right. Let's let's go with an explanation. He has a copycat. And there's a number. Yeah, there's a number of ways you could have done it. You could Uh have had Thad do it. Right. Right. You could have had. I like the copycat idea. I like the idea that somebody's become obsessed with his books. That would have worked too. The other thing that we should say is, his parents took those five pieces of flesh Mm -hmm. from the hospital and buried them in the family plot, which is where they put this grave. Grave. This fake grave. And there was a, a, the grave digger calls the next day because it looks as though somebody has dug out of that grave. So it's as though the, the, the killing of George Stark completed the sort of life and death cycle of uh-huh. this twin that Thad had that right. he didn't know he had. Um, not, I think, consciously. I think maybe subconsciously he knew it. Yeah. Um, and... Then those five pieces of flesh become a whole ass person. Yeah. That's what we're to understand has happened. Yeah. I, it's not explicitly spelled out, which is fine. Like I said, that was one of the long. elements of the film I liked. There were scenes I really liked out of this movie. I don't think that, I think the film works as a whole. I think there's a lot of fuzzy logic in the middle. Yeah. I think the climax doesn't make any sense, almost as if, and we know that this film experienced some financial problems and oh, I didn't went over budget. It waffled around, I believe it was in unreleased for a couple of years. Like the film was finished and then it, uh, and, and part of that is because George Romero is used to working quickly and mm. unfettered with low budget production crews and things like that. And then he works with a big budget production crew and there's a lot of time waste and things like that. Yeah, yeah, And yeah. he just did not know how to work with it. Right. So, so let's... Yeah. Okay. Um, finish up here. Sure. So, George basically takes the family hostage. Um, he takes the kids and he ties up the wife and Thad goes, to, goes there. I don't remember where the fuck Pangborn is. I guess maybe he's driving to Bangor. He's Bangle. driving. He's rushing he's to get them. That 160 right. miles. What a bitch. Uh, and he he basically starts forcing Thad to write him into existence. And as Thad writes with this pencil, mm-hmm. he starts healing a little bit. Now he's got boils on his face. He's got cuts on his face. There's flesh. There's a lot of pus. He's in wearing this film. a lot of uh, bandages wrapped around his head in to weird keep ways his face to together. keep his face on. Yeah, uh, and it starts healing, and um, all of these birds, there's all of these birds coming, just flying. So many birds, and they start flying at the house, and. Um, I guess the concept is the birds don't care who they take. They're going to take someone with them. But um, finally there's a fight. Thad stabs George in the neck with a pencil. Whoop. Uh, And Stark decides he's going to kill the twins. Uh, That's when Alan arrives. Sheriff Pangborn, it's so good to see you. And and ties uh, his wife, Liz. She's got a name. She's a person. Uh, and he says, Thad and Stark are upstairs. And then at that point, 
do they open the door and that's when the thing because I think Pangborn actually yeah, the birds actually, actually peck their way through the walls. Yes, the the birds come through the walls, which is wild. And there's <laughs> your a, house is like actually, straw. What is happening? M- meant to be serious, but it comes across as very funny because you just see little beaks and claws working their way it's through the lathe and plaster. It's kind of terrifying. And if you're afraid of birds, well, yes, I can this imagine is if not you are gonna, afraid of birds, yeah. but it, it does look a little silly. Like, well, yeah. what's that tearing through the wall? It's a sparrow. <laughs> so they come through the wall and they basically tear George Stark apart and take him back to hell, mm-hmm. including like his whole rib cage just flies away. <laughs> right. There's a, there's not much left of him. There seems to be a few cervical vertebra, a rib cage, and a single arm. As bones, he's been defleshed by these birds, and that is a really that is a disturbing really... effect. Yes, when they're ripping into his flesh with their little beaks and plucking out his eye, and there's yeah. a, a bird kind of fluttering on in his empty socket. The sound is creepy. not great. I mean, like it's deeply upsetting. Now, Wikipedia has this line in it. I don't subscribe, and it was never stated in the film. The sparrows are agents of Satan. They come to collect evil souls that were not allowed to live. No, Wikipedia. I don't think that that's accurate. All right. His eye is on the sparrow. Maybe that's why. Because you you don't know what they're up to, those little bastards. Right. (laughs) There we go. All right. And then they, then Thad and Liz and the babies and Alan Pangborn watch the sparrows disappear into the night. And then it ends so abruptly. They disappear into some sort of strange. Oh, yeah. um, Like a pocket. In the sky, into a sky and then pocket. it sucks itself up and it's done. Yep. And I just don't understand for the life of me. This is one of those films that ends in a very unsatisfactory way because. And then the end, like credits immediately. My thing is, well, how are they going to explain There is no denouement at all. I know, that's the thing. I'm like, well, Thad's going to prison. You left a world in shatters now. Thad. There's and so the many murders and... with his fingerprints all over them. Right. There's no explanation uh, for any of this. Alan Pangborn saw this. Thing he did see obscured by ravenous sparrows, the thing, but he did see the remains of the corpse taken out of the window and disappear into this self sealing black void. hole in the sky. Yes. He saw all of that, and so I don't. So, white privilege wins again, right? Well, but in, in, in our world, uh, that man's going to jail forever. There will be many true crime podcasts about him, right? Now, when you say white privilege, you're explaining that the, the fact that at no point is he enough under suspicion that anybody takes him in. No. And the weird part is that there's a constant discussion about whether or not he should be taken in. Yeah. And we're all talking not about... Not yet. Well, well, just wait. Wait for it. Just wait. Wait. Yeah. For, wait. No, it's fine. Let's see what happens. It's totally fine. Maybe. Maybe now. Six no, more people are now. dead, but it's totally probably not him. <laughs> His fingerprints are all over the crime scene. He has motive. He has but opportunity. But he has like half of an alibi, I've so come on. I've seen enough law in order to know <laughs> that this man should have been taken in. Yes. But, and I wish he had been. Right. Because the killings wouldn't have stopped, and then he would have That would have proved it. it but because he was never choice. taken in, I'm pretty sure he's going to jail for the rest of his life. Sorry, Thad. Well, given... You can write in prison. Right. You'll write the great <laughs> prison novel. But given how the rest of the story went, I'm not sure that he would go to prison, because apparently the police will just let you go. There were pri- there were cops killed there at the end though, so I don't know. Yeah, they I don't know. they don't like. But again, you're making go. the assumption that this is the real world, and it's not. It's no, the I world know. where you apparently can kill it's fifteen true. people or be supposed to have killed a lot of people. Just so many people. Right. Kill so many people. And they're brutal murders. We should give people that trigger warning. Women are dragged by their hair. People have their throats slit. Uh, there's, there's a, a lot of just slashes. 
of that straight razor arterial slashes. Not just necks. Yeah, there's, uh, there's foreheads, faces. Yeah, there's a lot of yeah. It's yeah. And the makeup work is very impressive, but at the same time, you are watching a lot of a lot of violence. The and it's funny. The first, like I said, the first time we saw Tim 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 Hutton as George Stark, uh-huh. I was like, "What is going on?" I thought the makeup was terrible because I could see it's like um. It's a profile shot, and I could see along his temples uh-huh. and around his eyes makeup. I could see, I don't know if it was appliance. It may have been appliance changing his hairline a little bit. Yeah. Um, And then I guess the reason that they did that was because they were going to be cutting into his face several times. Yeah. There's... And so they just started him with appliance on his face. But I was like... Ooh, is the makeup going to be real bad in this? Because I can, there there's a, nothing wrong with his face, but I can see that there's makeup on it. There is a moment in this film where he does this job of probing his fingers and opening a wound on his face that then starts Ugh. leaking pus everywhere. Ugh. So again, it's there's like body horror stuff, and be prepared for that when you watch this movie. I would recommend it just because so much of it does work. And honestly, it didn't. It's, first of all, it's two hours and two minutes. It did long, not feel that way. And it didn't. It felt like a runaway bus, is what it felt Because it, it like. really does. There is a death like every 10 minutes. Like mm-hmm. something is happening and people are moving. Tim Hutton has also the most beautiful blue eyes. So pretty his eyes are. Uh, and Amy Madigan, I really like. Here's a weird thing I don't know how old Amy Madigan is. Um, she seems too old to be his wife in this movie, which I think is Hollywood training me badly. Yeah. It's um, Hollywood training you badly. So she's well, 40 Hutton, when this movie was made. Uh-huh. Timothy Hutton also has... And Tim Hutton was 30, so I'm not right. wrong, actually. They cast a woman 10 years his senior to be his wife. So, you know what? Even though it felt weird to me, I'm on board. I think that, yeah, Tim Hutton is also one of those actors who's had such a long career. Yes. It's sort of like Jennifer Connelly. I have no idea how old she is because I've seen her since she was 14 right. and I was a kid. And she has looked similar. And I've had time. a crush on her the entire time. <laughs> but what I mean to say is that I have no idea how old she is because it's like we grew up side by side like we were kids. Right. Um and so sometimes when you have an actor with that long a career, I really lose track of, like, how old is this person? Yeah. So Tim Hutton, at the, at the making of this movie, he was born in 1960, so he would have been 30 when this movie was mm. made. Um, Amy Madigan is 10 years his uh, elder. Right. Which, yeah, I, I prefer that, too, than putting a 20-year-old in there. She doesn't need to be settled with twins at 20. But it just was a weird thing, because the whole time I'm like, you seem you know like who, you're too who old. Who would be really good in that part? But then I'm like, that's why she had twins, IVF. <laughs> you know who would be really good in that part is um, Jennifer Lawrence. Jennifer Lawrence needs oh, to play <laughs> more mothers of two at 40 years old. Hey, David O. Russell, I'm sure you're listening to this. Yes, you are. Start casting women that are the age of the characters that you're fucking making movies uh, about. Or make movies about 20-somethings. Part of this... Choose... One part of this might be the fact that it is a George Romero movie. Maybe. The lead character in Night of the Living Dead was not written as a black man, and he just cast a black yeah. actor in it, and that changed 
I'm, I'm not exaggerating, changed films yeah. forever. Yep, yep. Because he just colorblind casting, and it brought such a textual, meta, or metatextual, I'm sorry, that's not the word I'm looking for. Yeah, kind of, though. Le, uh, change to the script, and suddenly it became about so much more than just being a zombie picture. Uh, I think the same thing happens here, is that he can just make these changes. You're seeing an older woman in Julie Harris, because that could have been the the college professor, who male college professor in a film like this, who winds up becoming the uh, the mentor figure, and instead we have a female mentor figure, mm-hmm. and that in itself was a change. And so George Romero is likely to, with his uh, heroes who uh, we were just thinking today about Monkey Shines, where he has a hero with a handicap. Yeah, he does offbeat things I like that. Somebody. A disability, yes. I hate the word handicap. <laughs> yeah, no. But it, it, the fact that he does things like that in a film, this was an interesting choice because yeah. I really, I thought she was good in the part. I thought the whole thing worked. Yeah, no. I it just it was it struck me as odd, and then I didn't. I I just looked now, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, she is his age or more, which mm-hmm. you never see. You never see spouses that are similarly aged or older. So I'm on board with it. It was just it was a thing that my attention was drawn to. Um, so that's the dark half. I really like it, even when it doesn't make sense. Right. I did. I enjoyed it. I, I it have was, to say. It was lifted by, right. um, I think, Looker did a great job. Uh-huh. Uh, he's not my favorite Alan Pangborn. There's been some good Alan Pangborn. Yes, there the has problem. been. So we'll Scott get Glenn two more. Scott Glenn and Ed, Ed Harris. Harris. Ed Harris is next week, in fact. So next week, we're going to be watching Needful Things from uh-huh. 1993. Now, this is directed by Fraser Heston, yeah? Uh, yes. Okay. Who I, is a name I don't know. He uh, started his film career playing Baby Moses in the same film where his dad played Adult Moses. Oh, that's Charles Heston's, Heston's son? son? Yeah. Okay, interesting. Awesome. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. It's like well, his first role was playing, you know, the same character his dad played. They shared the part of Moses. Yeah, so he, um, yeah, so, and Ed Harris is Amy Madigan's husband. husband. Right, so there's a lot of interconnectedness. Yes. Um, so Needful Things is up next week. Uh-huh. This is a long one. Yes, and there's two versions of it. I'm sure it's something that I shared with you. There's a very, uh, like a four-hour well, film version. it wasn't four hours. It was yeah. when it was aired on television. It was four it was hours. Four hours. Okay. So it's like three hours, a little shy of three hours. But, you know, got to get those commercials in. When, but it was aired on TBS as a four-hour mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. Situation. I don't remember the entire film because, unfortunately, I didn't have the time to see all of it. I remember. This is one of the first books of his that uh-huh. I remember reading and liking very much. It's right. very scary to me uh-huh. because it's like... It's targeted fear, uh-huh. right? The things that you buy at the store target you, right. like whatever. And that is scary to me. General things that are scary are less scary to me mm-hmm. than very specific things that yeah, are scary. Yeah, I, 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 um, there's a couple of things that get me. Fear of drowning is one of them, because I nearly drowned at one point. Right. Uh, so there'll be trigger things. This one I found interesting because... Max von Sydow, yeah, who is the only actor I can remember off the top of my head who has played both Jesus Christ and Satan. <laughs> has Al Pacino done both? 
Ah, uh, no. Okay. He was actually asked, he was going to play Jesus in Jesus of Nazareth, and he decided not to take the part because he was a little intimidated by it, from what I understand. I'll do some research to see if there's but, anybody else. Uh, yeah, but that's interesting. Does Ewan McGregor play the devil? No. He's, he's just the weirdest Jesus I could think of. He is far too old to have played Caviezel? Jesus. Caviezel? no, I don't think so. No? Not like know. not a demon or something in like Stigmata? I, I, I don't no, know. I don't, I don't I'm just pulling that out stigmata. of nowhere. But yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that film yeah. with Ewan McGregor. Yes. Uh, oh, but yeah. He's I, too old. He's too old and... He's well past the age of 33. <laughs> very fair-skinned to be a Mediterranean Jew who lives yeah. in the desert. So that's that's another one where, as much as I like Ewan McGregor as an actor, that that image needs it, it needs some rethinking. So, next week, Needful Things. It's Needful on a bunch things. of things. It's on it's streaming in a bunch of places, I think. Mm-hmm. So you should be able to find it. Go Watch find it, it with us. This mm-hmm. one's going to be a good one, I think. Um, yeah. And so was this one. This film was good. It just... And this a, one's fun, and this one would be fun to watch with people right. because it's got some wild. I have to say scenes. that the choreography of the violence is realistic, which I appreciate. It's As not cartoon say, violence. Fast. Well, it's it looks like what would happen. The scene where he drop kicks the, or punts the guy's head really looks like he kicks a guy in the head, and I think there's something that it does not look stagey, stunty kind of uh, yeah. action, which is what I appreciate. It looks violent, like real life. Um, in the meantime, mm-hmm. do you have anything you want to recommend other yes. than a Stephen King? Uh, we were watching a film. We were. Just before we saw this called... Rudely uh, cut off. Cinemability. The Say art that of in- again. Cinemability. Cinemability. Uh, I like it, it. The Art of Inclusion. And it's a documentary made by a differently abled... And I will say that because I'm not being you know, a social justice warrior. I really hate the term... Disabled because yeah. I worked with uh, severely autistic kids and young adults at one point in my life, and it struck me how they're not. It's, we could say that they're disabled and they can't function like us, but they can function in ways that we can. Right, they are so differently saying, abled. Yes, saying that they are disabled, they're disabled to do what we do, but we can't do some of the things that they do. They yeah. do. So I would... She has muscular dystrophy. Right, she is the director. And she started uh, her career as one of uh, Jerry's kids. And in something that was actually a story that she tells in the introduction to... Well, she was being interviewed by Ben Mankiewicz on TCM when this film premiered on TCM just uh, last week. Is that... uh, And it touched me because I grew up watching the Jerry Lewis telethons. Uh, Lewis had her out in front of the cameras. She became fascinated with the whole process of filmmaking and television. And then she wound up making this documentary. Once she signed on for the Directors Guild, Jerry Lewis signed off for her as a director. Right. I guess when you get your Directors yeah. Guild card, you have to have three directors sign off. And she'd previously made narrative film. Right. This and then so she does this documentary, which calls a lot of resources into play and a lot of actors who talk about the experience of playing disabled characters who talk about the experience of, or the portrayals of characters, or breaks it down into sort of yep. types that you see on film. And, yep. and and has a lot of clips of films that you might want to see. If you haven't seen Wait Until Dark, because we're talking about Stephen King and suspense movies, oh, so Wait Until Dark good. is a hell of a movie. Because that puts the lie to the idea that the character Audrey Hepburn plays, who is blind, 
is disabled because the way that she's able to use her quote unquote disability. Yep. It's like a superpower. It's rad. I won't go into it. It's great. The way the film is done is great. Uh, so yeah, yeah. It's yes. it was a great documentary. I we didn't get to finish it because unfortunately, for some reason, our DVR cut off. Cut off. I was like, this what, movie's half only an hour short. Three minutes. Of the of the movie? It's half of it. Right. Because the was, movie's an hour and 37 minutes long, and we didn't get even And an this hour. film is very comprehensive. It starts out with Lon Chaney Sr. Well, it starts and, out with... And, this, and Thomas Edison's early Thomas films Edison's and things like film that. Thomas Edison's film from but, 19, or 1898. Right. These very serious kind of explorations of the topic. It is not... Uh, it's both populist and kind of scholarly, so it's a really fun movie. Yeah, and there's a lot of famous people in it. A lot of famous people. So she said she people. was able to track them down because her wheelchair can go 20 miles an hour. That's right, so she just chased they couldn't them until they got too her. tired. Which is very sweet, but there's a lot of Jane Seymour and Jane Seymour is the host, hostess of it. or host. I guess we can say host, sure. Right? And um, and yeah, so many performers. Ben Affleck's in it. Gina Davis is in it. There's a lot of people who are talking about the experience. Gary Sinise of both playing these characters and also the experience of working with these characters and the the archetypes, the people who paved the way. It was a really good film. Yeah. It's really good. I'm really enjoying it. I'm sad that we didn't get to see the end. But mm-hmm. it's also on Amazon Prime to rent for three ninety nine, so we might do. Right, go check it out. Go see it. Yes. What was it called again? It was called Cinemability. Cinemability. I love it. It also sounds like a delicious cinnamon thing. Yeah, the spirit of the movie is very plainly put forward where they have a version of a lion, um, not unlike the MGM lion wearing a pair of glasses, sunglasses, to you know, as if it's blind. Yes. And I, that's, so it's not at some point, it's not trying to make you feel bad. No, it isn't. And it isn't sympathy. maudlin. No, yeah, it no. is very much, this is the way that people have been portrayed. This is what also what they're capable of. Yeah. And, and it's about inclusion. We just got to the point where they signed the ADA in 1990 and mm-hmm. we talk about, and they talk about the um, similarity to the Civil Rights Act. Right. Uh, and Martin Luther King saying you have to, it's hearts and minds. You can't, mm-hmm. you have to change people's perceptions before you can change legislation. It doesn't work the other way around. It doesn't work the other well, way around. Let me say it again. It doesn't work the other way around. That's why this is the move on climate change right now. Hearts and minds or nobody's going to well, do anything l- legal. Yeah, I thought that as a person of color who's had so many negative interactions with the police, I honestly believe that one of the reasons why that happens is that if you're a police officer and you go home and every black or Hispanic person you see on television mm-hmm. is a crime lord, is a drug dealer, yep. you're going to carry that with your work, yep. into your work. And so if you're able to carry positive images yep. about representation people, matters. Representation, representation matters. It's going to change the attitude of the entire world eventually. And that's something they do cover in this film too. Yep. Yeah. No, so this, this was good. It is good. So, do you have something to recommend? Um, yes, I am going to recommend for anybody who likes true crime, y'all. I know the world is a shit show, guys, and I I know. But sometimes I just like to listen to true crime stories because I am a white lady, and that's what we do. Um, it has to do with us being, you know, relatively safe most of the time. <laughs> I started listening to a new podcast. It's actually what I listen to to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. So I have to listen to every episode like three times. It is a little, it bit, is a little bit crazy that mm-hmm. that is what I'm doing. 
So this show is a, it's a popular podcast. I just never heard of it before. It's called Case File. It is so far my favorite true crime podcast narrated by a man. Um, <laughs> okay. I say that explicitly because very many of the true crime podcasts that are narrated by men that I have listened to in the past, this isn't universal, but this is what I felt is a more often than not uses deeply upsetting terminology. A lot of times they're very flip about victims. Uh, a lot of times they are very problematic and they're talk about sex workers. Uh, and a lot of times they are going, they're trying to tell these stories from a, through a lens that I don't want to see these stories. Right. Through. Uh, and I don't like it. So, this one is, first of all, it's a Australian person. It's anonymous host. It is a, it's a male mm. voice, but you don't know anything about them. They just read a written and very, very well-researched script that has enough sort of author asides or mm. narrator asides to to not feel like a robot is telling you a thing right. or you're reading um, a strict news article, but mostly they focus on the crimes. Okay. They do a lot of detail about the victims, like who these people really were mm. and what the fuck they cared about. Not just this person the, is the last, like it, it mm -hmm. is famous because this other person did this terrible thing to them. Um, they spend a lot of time with the actual people who have been victimized, uh, which I actually also really like. Like, say their names. Don't say the names of the Killer. perpetrators nearly as much. Um, they're pretty long. He does speak in a pretty monotone mm -hmm. tone. He's, there's not a lot of pauses. As I said, it's all very well researched and written out, and then he just reads it. Right. So it's really easy to fall asleep because he's got this little thin Australian accent. And he's not, and he's not modulating his tone very much. Okay. So it's like you just sort of can get into a, a trance, and it'll help you go to sleep. So if you need help going going to sleep, and these things don't disturb you to the point where you can't sleep, where you can't sleep, I actually recommend this show because I actually my brain, if I'm tired enough, just sort of tunes out the words that he's saying, uh -huh. and then his lilt kind of puts me to sleep. But when I'm working. Like, I listened to a five-part show yesterday uh -huh. um, about the backpacker murders in Australia, uh, and it was fascinating. So you you don't you won't necessarily fall asleep, but... So I'm using it for both. I'm enjoying it. I'm I, going through the backpacker now. I have an issue now. with a lot of the, the true crime stories because, as you've mentioned, they're not really respectful to yeah. the victims, and they tend to glorify the killers. Mm -hmm. And... Um, this group of like sexually frustrated mouth breathers that we for some reason in culture now equate with arch villains like Hannibal Lecter. Yeah. And they're usually just And the thing is I am also guilty of that. Right. I will watch Hannibal all day long. Yeah, but the, like as, as long as it's part of a larger group, it just sort of yeah. shows a lot of these are just stupid, you know. Yes. 
Yeah, I, well, I haven't watched that Dahmer movie with right. Zac Efron because it wants me to believe that Dahmer was this suave, sophisticated thing. And no, no. policing was bad. Right. Policing was racist. Policing was racist. Policing was bad. On two the, occasions, his people of color victims were returned, returned to, him. to him. But also, like, I just listened to um, the, ma- the Man out, man in the Window, Man mm-hmm. at the Window, which is a, uh, a podcast dedicated to the Golden State Killer. Uh-huh. And... The number of times that these, he raped like 50 women uh-huh. and was referred to repeatedly as gentle because the women were unhurt, you know, except for the rape part. Right. And I'm just like, what the fuck is wrong with people? And this was the men- mentality right. in the 70s and it's fucking the mentality now. It's why rape right. kits just sit on shelves right. because. It's not that big of a fucking deal. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes, it fucking is. Sorry. I'm just... I'm sorry, but... Okay. That it's, <laughs> policing is bad in a lot of these cases. It's not a super fucking... It's, it's a lot of I'm dumb and I have stupid confidence. Right. And a lot of we're looking in the wrong places. Or we cannot make a full, complete case. And so we make no case at all. Uh, So it's, it's, you know, that's frustrating. But uh, the way that these stories are, like the the research that they're doing is very good. um, And they do cite all of their sources. mm -hmm. Uh, And the way that it is told, I think, is compassionate and good. And like I said, all of the episode titles, um, if it's about a particular person who was killed the title is their name it's not the killer's name yeah um i do think that they have a golden state killer series but like they did the backpacker murders there were seven there was it it was a it was a five episode series Uh it was six and a half hours long uh and four hours of that was individual victim stories uh, what what they did the things that they enjoyed mm-hmm. a lot of family um families recalled they also because it's uh it's uh, australian they have a lot of um like um the word farewell as a verb uh-huh. like they farewelled Oh, Their family thing. farewelled them, which both means said goodbye and also like buried. Yeah. Um, that's a word that I'd never heard as a verb before. And I, lo- I kind of love it because I'm like, yeah, that's a clunky thing to have to say. They use that word and it's fucking cute. Yeah. Also, he says, skeletal remains, <laughs> which is super fun. <laughs> There's another thing that he pronounces super weird that I was like, really? Okay. <laughs> um, oh. Hostel. Hostels hostel? are hostels, yes. Oh, weird. So, uh, but, so that's Case File. It's, a, like, it's on the top whatevers of okay. all the podcasts. Uh, they're doing very nice, respectful, it feels to me respectful work. Uh, yeah, that's great. Sounds I like good. it. So that's what I'm wa- listening to. So that's everything, I think, mm-hmm. for this week. Next week, once again, Needful Things, Ed Harris, Alan Pangborn. Buying some shit from Max von Sydow. Look out. Buy now. Pay later. That's the tagline. It's very good. 
okay, I, no, it, the movie's better I than like the, ta- the tagline. That's a good tagline for what this is. Um, okay. I'm right, he's wrong. No, it's just, yeah. <laughs> so, you can reach us at latecomerspod at gmail.com if you have questions, comments, concerns, or if you want to just tell Lemuel that he is wrong, and buy now, pay later is a good tagline for needful things. Uh, or if you can explain to us the universe of the dark half and what the fuck caused George to live and then die? Are sparrows uh, Satan's little eyes looking at us at all times? Let us know. Uh, we're also on Twitter at LatecomersPod. We are on Facebook, Latecomers Podcast. That's everything. I remind you to take your medicine and we remind you better late than never. Pew, pew, pew.